You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. We have another filmmaker who is coming from a large body of work that makes up his filmography. Some of his films include The Piano, The Portrait of a Lady, Bridget Jones's Diary, The Recruit, The Painted Veil, Amelia, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Alice Through the Looking Glass, The Great Wall, among other films that he has shot. Stuart Dryberg, welcome to the film podcast. Thank you very much, Craig. You're a Kiwi cinematographer who left the shores of New Zealand many, many years ago. You now reside in Brooklyn, New York. How, how long have you lived there and how are you finding the life in New York? Um, it suits me. I was born in London, so I guess I've always been a city kid by sort of instinct and New York suits me very well. And I was in Manhattan for about 10 years, and I've been here in Brooklyn for 15. Yeah, I find it very, uh, very suitable <laughs> for me. And you spend a lot of time in the creative capital of New Zealand, Wellington. What do you miss about Wellington and New Zealand, do you think, uh, sitting there in Brooklyn, New York? I was just thinking about today, because today is a beautiful fall day here in New York. But every so often in Wellington in winter, you'll get an absolutely perfect, still, sunny day in the middle of winter, like in June or July. They're rare, but they're to be treasured. <laughs> For sure. Now, I'm just thinking, where do we start? So if you don't mind, Stuart, I thought what we'd do is bounce around your slate of films in a non-chronological order, because there is so much to discuss here. And I thought one of your projects that I found that you were a DP on, I only found this out yesterday when checking on good old IMDb. And that is that you worked with Martin Scorsese on the pilot of Boardwalk Empire. Now, there must be a really good backstory to how you ended up with this gig working with Scorsese because... It's not the first time that you've worked with him, as I understand it. I think you shot a television commercial, which included the Rolling Stones. Is that right? You are correct that it wasn't a commercial. We did. I was one of the cinematographers as a camera operator on Martin Scorsese's concert performance film, Shine a Light, which was a live concert film of the Rolling Stones. I think it was 16 of us at the end of the day. But that was the first time I worked with Marty. But, I, you know, again, I was one of a huge crowd at that point. I'm a little mystified as to how I actually got to shoot the pilot of Boardwalk. I don't know where the call came from, but I was, as you can imagine, thrilled yes. to work with the man, such a iconic New York filmmaker. And he really is. I mean, he's, he's probably one of the few film directors when walking down a street in Soho, there are people going, hey, Marty, who, hey, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, th there's a sense of him being a local hero. So, yeah, no, it was like, wow, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm up for this. And HBO at the time was breaking new ground with Boardwalk Empire, and the Sopranos, of course, had reached a whole new level of this high-quality drama production. And like any series, the pilot is the mother of all episodes to get right and to lay the track, if you will, for the train of episodes to follow down it. So how did that combination between you and Marty Scorsese work to create from the very beginning the overall aesthetic look, the palette, 
and the tone of that show? Well, a lot of that came from designer Bob Shaw, who built the amazing, huge outdoor set of the boardwalk and sort of set the tone of it there. The way that Marty works when he prepares a film, he creates an annotated script. He takes a copy of the script and he locks himself away in a hotel room for a few days and he draws little pictures and writes little notes all over it, little lists of shots and ideas. And if you're one of the key collaborators, you get handed one of these and that's your Bible for the film. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's sort of where we started. As I say, and Bob Shaw, the designer, had a lot of great reference material for the period and the, the look of that, that era. And we sort of went from there. It's a very big canvas to play with, a very big ensemble cast. And coverage is always a stress load for a cinematographer to handle in that situation. Did you enjoy that whole challenge of something like a boardwalk because it is that type of production in terms of scale? Yeah, look, it was great. But it was you get somewhere between 15 and 20 days to make it. 20 is on the long side. And we had 30. I think we actually took 31. So it was more like making a a film uh, than a pilot. So a lot of the stress that goes into producing a pilot, which is the fact that you're really crunched for time, not as badly as the people who then follow behind you and do the series, of course, but nevertheless, you know, you're, you're jamming it. We didn't really, we didn't really have that, you know. I mean, for, for Marty, it seemed like a challenge. And he says, oh, you went, well, it's exciting. This is just like doing Taxi Driver again. And, uh, you know, so in many ways, it was the most luxurious of the possible ways to make a pilot. And on a show like Boardwalkers, especially for the pilot, the period has to be totally convincing in a way that we, the audience, don't give it a second thought. So I guess there's a lot of discussions from a cinematographer's point of view that you are having with the production designer of this show. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, essentially between the production designer, the costume designer, and myself, I mean, we are really setting the look of it. We wanted to keep it pretty real. We weren't creating a piece that was styled to look like a period movie. It's obviously a period movie but not, we weren't doing any sort of cutesy style tricks as if we were making the film in the 1920s but using our modern film technology. And I don't know about you, but period pieces I really enjoy even more so these days because there's no smartphones in them. You know, yeah. no, everybody's not looking at their phone. <laughs> Sounds stupid, but it's kind of like a, a lifetime ago now that we sort of had, we lived in that reality. That's true. Yeah, it's, it is true. And in 1993, you worked on this little wee film called The Piano which went on to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival, making Jane Campion, of course, the first female director to ever receive this award. The piano also won three Academy Awards out of eight total nominations, including Best Actress for Holly Hunter, Best Supporting Actress for Anna Paquin, and Best Original Screenplay for Jane Campion. Does it feel, Stuart, when you were making this film that there was some kind of magic unfolding as you shot it? Yeah, we knew we were making a really good little film. But what we didn't know was how much people would love it, how, how it would be embraced. You know, from my point of view, 
the fact that the director comes to you and says that uh, we're essentially making a silent movie here, the main character doesn't speak, you're going to have to tell the story almost entirely in pictures. It had really great ingredients and Jane had really nailed it with the script. I knew from the very beginning something quite original in terms of period pieces. And I think even to this day it stands up and it's still, it's still, you know, it's still something to look at and be very proud of. What is interesting about the film is that if you think 1993, period films had a very specific kind of playbook. I mean, it was, again, it was a, it was a star team of New Zealand filmmakers that we put together, costume designer, you know, unbelievable. The, the costumes in that film, just fantastic, you know, just period correct. The way that when she sinks into the mud after she's had her finger mm. cut off, the dress kind of billows up like a huge mushroom around her. It's very special. It's very special work. I'm kind of referring to the fact that I literally saw it all the way through a couple of times last week. We've been doing a 4K remaster of piano for Criterion, the Criterion Collection. So Jane and I sat down with a colorist last week and we went did the final touch-ups on a, what has been quite a long process remastering this film. The piano today still must give you that great deal of satisfaction on not only the collaboration that you had with Jane Campion, but also everybody really that was involved in making this endeavor a reality. There are so many such clever things. The way that Andrew McAlpine created the two worlds of Sam Neill's house, the sort of burnt, muddy, you know, colonial rampage in the forest, and Harvey Keitel's sort of eco-lodge <laughs> where you could almost not see where the, the house ended and the forest started. It's very special. It's very special work. And it's weird, isn't it, that there will be younger people that are listening to this podcast right now that have never watched The Piano. They're actually going to get a chance uh, potentially to watch it in 4K. They'll discover it for the first time in 2021. I mean, that's the magic of filmmaking right there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, it, it is a film that... that uh that stacks up over the over the years. It was it was very gratifying. You know, I don't tend to revisit my work uh, unless I'm called upon to do a class or a, you know a lecture or something. So to actually sit down and watch this whole film again, beginning to end. But yeah, remastering remastering the film was uh, an amazing experience, and you know, really great to see how well it stands up over over time. Yeah, for anybody who hasn't seen The Piano, it really is in the handbook of filmmaking to watch and learn, especially for our filmmaker audience. Uh, but one thing that you won't miss from that film, I'm sure, is the amount of mud that you were stuck in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the good news was that it was our mud. We made it. It tended to only be where we wanted it. The actors had to deal with it a lot more than we did. There were some tricky moves around the exterior of, of uh, the Sam Neill's house. When the grips wanted to lay a track, they had to dig down through the mud to create a firm foundation so that the dolly tracks didn't sort of sink into the, into the mire like a railway being built in a swamp. But we, yeah, we didn't do too bad. Then six years after that experience of the piano, you were brought in to make the pilot episode of Sex in the City. I mean, you, you couldn't have two different, vastly different genres. But what is it about you, Stuart, that people come to you as their go-to cinematographer for a pilot? 
I've done probably five over my career, you know, but they've all been with interesting directors. I had moved to New York. I'd actually come to do a movie that I actually got fired from, but I decided to stay anyway for all kinds of reasons. And so I was there and my agent connected me with Susan Seidelman and the, the producers of Sex and the City. And yeah, we thought we were making that as a sort of gritty urban drama. <laughs> and if you look at the pilot episode, it is that. And then, you know, as it goes on, of course, it all gets glossier and glamier. The thing about pilots for a cinematographer, they are a great opportunity to meet people. I got to work with Marty on Boardwalk. That led me to Michael Mann and a th series for, another series for HBO called Luck which was a fantastic introduction. You know, we then went on to do a film, um, what was it called? Uh, it's Black Hat with uh, oh, yeah. Chris Hemsworth, which I'm very, very fond of. Really quite special shot in Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur and Jakarta and Los Angeles. I mean, really, the Hong Kong stuff's fantastic, really incredible shooting in Hong Kong at night where you have that amazing sensitivity for night photography. And you mentioned Chris Hemsworth. It's probably yeah. a good good point to mention in 2018, of course, you shot Men in Black with Chris Hemsworth. Yep. A lot of moving parts on this film. I wonder what your younger self would have said if a person tried explaining to you after you wrapped filming on the piano in 1993 that you'd be making this studio film with aliens in CG probably maybe the first thing you'd say is what the hell is CG? I would have because I don't think we called it that. Maybe we did. There were digital effects, but they were still exported back to film for the finishing of the film. Just coming back to that Men in Black, how big was that project for you to navigate through? Because there's a lot of uh, moving parts to that film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there is. But by that stage in my career, I was pretty comfortable. I'd already done a huge effects movie, um, The Great Wall, and was very comfortable with integrating, even on, on smaller pictures, the, the requirements of visual effects. But it is a, it is a big film. It uh, takes place in four different countries, I think. We had a big second unit doing a lot of the, the action work which I was able to bring in one of my key collaborators, Wukash Yogawa, as the cinematographer on, on that unit. We did extensive prep. I mean, we really did. That movie was very carefully prepped. And what type of genre gives you the most creative expression to express your craft in, do you think? Um, I like the smaller films, the smaller dramas. Aside from Men in Black, which is a big film, most of the f stuff I've done has been you know, relatively small to medium budget, personal movies for committed filmmakers. And in 1998, you shot Runaway Bride with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. And then in 2001 came Bridget Jones's Diary. Now, both films are drama comedies and also shot on film. Looking back now on your filmography of films shot on celluloid, it's clear that you prefer to go with film if you're given the chance. Somebody like a Quentin Tarantino is always going to shoot on film. It's his preference. His budget allows that. He's that type of director that he can do it. Yeah, Chris Nolan as well would be another, another guy who only shoots film. Exactly. And he yeah. shoots big budget. I mean, crazy big budget films, you know. 
And cinematographers, of course, do have a voice in the decision-making. There has been, since the advent of digital, with your preference to shoot on film, but are you able to, with a final vote, be able to tip a decision in favour of film? Has that happened in your career, where you've just been able to nudge it just that little bit more to get it shot on film? It hasn't, and that's partly because the case for one or the other was very clear in every case. The Mark Webb films, uh, Only Living Boy and Gifted, could have been shot on digital, but Mark himself, like the you know, Tarantino's and Nolan's of this world, much prefers to shoot film. I don't think he's done a digital feature yet. You know, when your director's telling you they want to shoot film, <laughs> I'm not going to fight with him about it. But what sort of rationale comes into the pilot for sex in the city to shoot that on 16 millimeter because is, is that right you shot yeah, that that was 16 mil film. and in fact i think the whole i think the whole series was 16 mil and certainly what was communicated to me and the way i shot it was that we were down and dirty in the city and that was our mo and mm. you know 16 millimeter it's more portable it's uh, easier to do handheld and in and out of cars and out of the subway if we need to. The fact that they stayed in 16 mil for the entire season series, yeah. I th which I believe is the case, and I don't, I don't actually know that, but I don't imagine they changed. I think there probably was a, a strong argument once they succeeded with the first season that to switch to 35, but I don't think they did. It's interesting. And in yeah. 2015, you shot, as you mentioned, the fantasy action monster film, The Great Wall. Yeah. And I believe that you chose the Alexa 65. In fact, you were the first shoot to use that camera. And because it was being screened in different formats like IMAX, you clearly wanted the large sensor. Uh, but you had to keep pace of what was going on with digital technology. Clearly, you've been able to do that. So just talk that through. You get the gig of being the cinematographer on this epic action piece of a film. You read the script and the producers are telling you presumably what the intended output of the film is going to be, as we mentioned, IMAX. So how do you then work back from that and decide on which camera to use? Immediately before Great Wall. I was shooting Alice Through the Looking Glass. In fact, I pretty much went straight from one to the other. And when we were preparing Alice Through the Looking Glass, the visual effects team from Sony, Sony Visual Effects, it's not the same as Sony Corp, were very keen that we should shoot in 4K uh, because there are a number of tricky facial things that they wanted a lot of data to work with. And, and I'm not, a, you know, I had been a big fan of the Alexa camera system. As we were prepping the film, my friends at Ari Rental whispered in my ear, we think you should come over to Munich and see what we're working on, but you have to promise not to tell anyone what it is. They had a mock-up of something that looked very much like a regular Alexa, just a little bit fatter, which is ultimately what the 65 does look like. But that was a mock-up, you know, something you could pick up and hold, but it didn't take pictures. Uh, what they had to take pictures with was a large aluminum box about the size of a beer crate with curly wires sticking out the top and a lens on the front, and they called it the Franken camera. Hmm. And this was essentially all the working parts of the 65, which they hadn't yet figured out how to get in the box. You know, it's 6.5K. So, okay, well, that's great. Well, that'll make the VFX people happy. 
the the problem was they couldn't quite put it together in time for us to shoot on Alice. Towards the end of shooting Alice, I had a FaceTime meeting with the director and producers of Great Wall. So I was able to say, well, there's this brand new camera, and there we went. And the Great Wall, could there be more parts, more moving parts to this film, the scope and the vision of this film, especially with the big action sequences? There's a a lot to consider as a cinematographer. Can you give us a, a sense of just how big your team was around the camera and some of these, these action set pieces that you were filming? On the main unit, we had three camera teams. The A camera was led by Peter McCaffrey, New Zealand Steadicam operator, along with his assistant, Brendan Holster. We manned the B camera with a very interesting young cinematographer who lives in China, but was actually Persian by birth, whose name was Saba Muslim. And then we, we had a, a third camera team as well. We would set up three cameras for every setup, for sure, 100%. It really was a great team effort. What were some of the more tricky elements to capture, given that you were dealing with a lot of CG pieces on the Great Wall? John Meyer, the, the production designer, wanted to build as much as possible and not kick too much of it back to visual effects. So at the Great Hall, where a number of scenes take place, was built entirely except for its roof. So it was built right to the, the height of its walls, which really helped us with lighting it and, and getting the, the feeling. And that was some of the earlier first stuff we shot there. There's a, a particularly tricky scene that was very dear to the director's heart, where the two uh, European adventurers are, are sort of brought in from their cell and hoisted up in a basket like an elevator up through the, the innards of the Great Wall until they come out on the top to see the whole sort of fortification and the, the preparations being made for the attack of these monsters. We had to do a sort of poor man's motion control to, to blend all those pieces together. Complicated, complicated in lighting, complicated in camera movement. And that's the one that springs to mind. But there were a number of sort of clever moves like that in the film, which uh, were challenging. And is it true that the producers were hoping to film on the Chinese wall, but were denied that permission to do so? If that happened, if there was an, ever an approach to shoot on the wall that was denied, it happened before I was involved on the picture. From the very first, John Meyer was saying, we are building our own wall. Our wall is not really the same as the Chinese wall. It's wider, it's taller, it's, mm -hmm. it's hollow. They modeled it very closely on the, on the, the architecture of the, of the actual wall. And going back to Men in Black, I wonder if the producers actually saw the Great Wall and thought, hey, this guy knows what he's doing when it comes to, you know, a big, big scale film like this. I hope so. I think by that stage, there was enough sort of big picture credibility there, you know. And in 2005, you photographed a film which for me, along with The Piano, I think is your best work, and that's The Painted Veil. It's beautifully shot with big sweeping landscapes and the way the story and images unfold is really magical with evocative scenery. What are some of the best memories for you when you look back and reflect on that film, The Painted Veil? The Painted Veil was 
I believe the first real collaboration between a US studio, Warner Brothers, and Chinese partners. They, they created a subsidiary called Warner Brothers China, but uh, it was essentially a partnership with Chinese filmmakers. You know, the adventure of that in the first place, like going where, you know, no man has gone before, a bit of a Star Trek moment. I worked with a Chinese gaffer, brilliant guy called Ji Jiamin really, really experienced lighting guy who spoke not a word of English and I spoke not a word of Mandarin and we communicated brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. So that was a much more immersive experience in China. We were all relatively new to the Chinese world. They were not used to working with Westerners. In Beijing, we were shooting in the ancient, literally falling down China film studios, studios out in the second ring road, which were beautiful, but had been neglected and let to rot and ruin. Literally, the, the roof literally leaked onto our sets. It was tragic. And going down into the deep into the country, into Guangxi province, where all the location work was done, you know, the rivers, the cast mountains, that beautiful village. I mean, a really special time and, and amazing cast. You know, Diana Rigg, you know, who knew? Yeah. You know, the original Avengers and Naomi Watts, uh, Ed Norton, Liev Schreiber, Toby Jones. I mean, fantastic cast. John Curran, the director, really, really brought it. And it was a big film for Edward Norton, who toiled away for many years from a producer's point of view to actually get this thing up and going. Of course, he starred in the film, as you said, with Naomi Watts. It's a big film to pull off for Norton, which from a producer's point of view, it's a big collaboration that you are doing with him. You would have known it was a project that he would have been wanting to make for such a long time. Does that put any extra additional pressure on you from a cine's approach? No, not really. I mean, but because once you're hiring a cinematographer, no matter what pain and drudgery there may have been involved up to that point, you've now got the money, you're now making the movie. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I knew that it had taken a while to come together, but there's no particularly special pressure at that point. You know, I'm not there until there's a movie. I mean, the hardest thing about being a director and a producer and a, anyone who develops films is that process of development, of trying to get people to give you money, trying to cast it, trying to get the right actors to, to come in because this actor will bring this much money from, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have to deal with any of that. I don't get hired until it's a movie. And what is next before we go? Have you got something at the moment? I don't. I When I came back from Men in Black, I have a, a wife who I adore and two teenage now teenage sons here in New York. And I was sort of done with traveling for a while. I wanted to spend a bit more time at home. So I reactivated my commercial career. I started in New Zealand. The first five years as a cameraman in New Zealand, I was only shooting commercials and music videos. So I kind of went back to that world and fell in with some nice commercial filmmakers here. And I've been happily plonking away at that. It's been pretty COVID-proof, which has been good. I do feel that I should do another movie soon-ish before I forget how to do it. But one hasn't come up to tempt me away from home yet. So so that's, that's it. Yeah, no, happy little commercial shooter doing my little fashion and comedy spots all over the US and Europe. You know, there's three degrees of separation between you, me, China, and goodbye pork pie. China? 
<laughs> Goodbye, Paul would... Pie and you. No. Yeah. I have no idea. That's too complicated. So the answer is that I was invited to go to China with a film of mine as part of a film delegation. And another director who came with me was Jeff Murphy's son, Matt, with oh, right. Goodbye, Goodbye Pork Pie Part 2. So right. there you go, three degrees of separation. Matt was our lighting, ass- a lighting assistant and general dog's body on the original Goodbye Pork Pie, where I was the gaffer. <laughs> yeah, he was, I think he was 15. <laughs> and everybody outside of New Zealand are now saying, what is that? Goodbye Pork Pie. <laughs> you know? yeah. We'll leave that for another time. Stuart, thank you so much for these many, many insights into your comprehensive list of films. Our filmmakers would have definitely taken away a lot of different parts to this conversation. And thanks for talking to us on the film podcast. It's my pleasure, Craig. And, uh, you know, we'll do it again sometime if you want to. We've only covered, you know, scratch the surface here, mate. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.